Welcome to the Metabolic Mind Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Brett Schur. Metabolic Mind is a nonprofit initiative of Bazooki Group, where we're providing information about the intersection of metabolic health and mental health, and metabolic therapies such as nutritional ketosis as therapies for mental illness. Thank you for joining us. Although our podcast is for informational purposes only and we aren't giving medical advice, we hope you will learn from our content and it will help facilitate discussions with your healthcare providers to see if you could benefit from exploring the connection between metabolic and mental health. Today we have another dramatic personal story. Ben Rolnick, who's lived with depression for most of his life, having suicidal thoughts at the age of seven, and just the, the, the struggle that he describes of living with depression and never knowing if you're going to have any energy for the day or if you're going to have suicidal thoughts this day, and how he sort of helped treat himself to the point where he found ketogenic therapy and how ketosis changed everything for him, where he now, he no longer has to even think if he's going to have a bad day or if he's going to have the energy or if he can enjoy just the pure pleasure of his 18-month-old daughter that's gone because now he knows every day he will be able to, and he attributes, it, he attributes it to ketogenic therapy. And the other part about Ben, though, I mean, obviously, just any, any personal story like that is amazing, but Ben is the director of the Stanford Healthcare Innovation Lab, where they are bridging the gap between technology and medicine and trying to transform healthcare with precision and personalized medicine. So, Having had this personal experience, his brain is now thinking, what is what are the next steps? How do we how do we test and define these phenotypes so we know exactly who's going to benefit from ketogenic therapy? But also at the same time, he says, look, until we get there, it's a safe thing. Why wouldn't people try it? So so Ben is in such a unique position to to bridge the gap of lived experience and thinking about the research and thinking about how do we help people just like Ben? How do we give them hope? And, and, you know, his life was transformed. How do we transform other lives? So I hope you enjoy that message from Ben Rolnick. But first, before we get to the interview, please remember our channels for informational purposes only. We're not providing individual or group medical or healthcare advice or establishing a provider-patient relationship. Many of the things we talk about, including ketogenic diets or any changes to your medications, can be dangerous if done without proper supervision. So please always consult your healthcare provider first before making any significant changes. So with that, I really hope you enjoy this this inspiring um, and, and really encouraging interview with Ben Rolnick. Well, Ben, thank you so much for joining me today on Metabolic Mind. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, Appreciate so, it. So I want to give a little context. I mean, we first met because you're the director of Healthcare Innovation Lab at Stanford University, working with uh, Dr. Michael Snyder, and we were talking about maybe collaborating on different research ideas. But then, then I hear that you have this amazing personal journey that I think the world should hear about. And fortunately, you were willing to join us today to to kind of tell people about your journey. So first, thank you for doing that. And second, where do you want to start about telling us your, your journey? <laughs> I got the chills all over my body when you said that. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and, and, and emotional, um, actually, because I've spent so many years suffering, so many years. Um, and the way that I like to describe it is that um, there's no way to describe that feeling to somebody, you know, that feeling, whatever that feeling really is. And, you know, we try to essentially have self-reports to, 
you know, kind of find ways to get at those people who are experiencing that feeling. Um, but you know, it, it really feels like being in hell and, mm. um, and it feels like that the best option is, is suicide, you know, not enduring it any further. And yeah. it is extraordinarily hard to articulate why that is in the moment, but it is such a overwhelming feeling when you're in that feeling. And, um, and I, I spent many, many, many years of my life, you know, kind of going in and out of that, um, and, um, and trying a lot of things to escape it. And, um, I, the way that I like to tell this story is that, um, you know, my, my, my mother was never really into like pharmaceutical drugs and, you know, kind of like the traditional healthcare system. And so, you know, for the first, like, I would say 27 years of my life, like it was my, the only options that were psychologically available to me were mind body interventions, like psychotherapy, you know, kind of self-help style work, mindfulness based work. And I think that through that time, I really learned how to become, you know, functional. So, you know, we could sit here and you would never know that I might be, you know, kind of dealing with like a suicidal depressive episode or something like that. Um, and, uh, you know, and I could sort of like white knuckle my way through um, having different episodes. But but it was like carrying a, you know, 500 pound anchor behind me as wow. I walked around. And um, and yeah, I feel really blessed and fortunate that um you know, that pain and that suffering inspired me to, first of all, want to get out of it. Um, and then second of all, try to help other people get out of yeah. it too. Um, you know, because I, I think that health is really our, our most important asset. You know, like I, you know, have spent a lot of time around, you know, kind of like powerful people, wealthy people, you know, kind of famous people, all of that. But when people have, you know, all the fame, wealth, whatever in the world, but they're sick and they're depressed, what's the point of all of it? Yeah. You know, they can't enjoy it. Yeah, and it's um, great perspective. Yeah. So, so, I mean, gosh, you've used such powerful imagery and terms already to give us an insight of how you were feeling. But, but looking back, what age do you remember feeling this, this like weight of depression, as, as you said? Um, like one of, one of the earliest memories of this for me was, and, and it's, it's a, one of those blurry, fuzzy images now, but it was, it was standing in my bathroom at around seven years old with like a bottle of Mr. Clean wanting to drink it. Wow. And, you know, I don't remember the feeling then. I just remember that as an episode mm -hmm. and I didn't do it, but, but I'm like, what? would drive a seven-year-old, you know, to want to do that. Like yeah. I laugh because I have a 16 month old daughter, you know, and like, you know, I like throw her up in the air and she goes again, again, again. And like, <laughs> she's so happy and like so cute and all of that. And I'm just like, I'm like, I'm like, it, it's always been a fascinating question to me. Like what was driving, you know, kind of that level of a pain and, yeah. um, and you know, and so, so you could, you could say it started then and then basically, you know, all the way up until the last few years of my life where I really solved a lot of it. You know, when, when I really started to go into like biology and I was able to speak to, you know, kind of this expert resource, resource network that I'd found, you know, through my time at Stanford 
and you know kind of with consulting with these deep experts and having a lot of time to go through the literature and just do my own level of biohacking i made massive progress and then you know kind of much more recently you know it's like go turning on the the keto fuse was just absolutely curative yeah. you know like because I, I was pretty good like over the last few years um meaning like again if i had an episode i could like white knuckle my way through and like maybe i would just like spend a saturday in bed longer and then like being like how do i make it to sunday but then sunday would come around and like things would like you know like recalibrate pretty quickly I don't have days like that anymore, wow. you know, like it just, yeah. it, and by the way, I, I think it's really important for people to understand that like for who I was in that state, it was hard for me to predict my life in the future because I didn't know, I never knew how I was going to feel a week from now, a month from now, yeah. you know, it wasn't consistency. And like now it's like, okay, I can fly, you know, to a conference in Singapore or to Riyadh or to Dubai. And I'm not even like, there's no thought in my mind that I'm even going to have a bad day. And that's, that was inconceivable to a younger self of mine. Wow. I mean, that's so amazing. So powerful to hear that <laughs> transformation. So, but part of what makes your story so unique is your position and your access to these experts and to be involved in healthcare innovation and and I mean, to have this at your disposal and to have the mind to want to research deeply. So when you said you improved most of it, what were some of the things that you found that you think helped you prior to starting ketosis? And then we'll talk more about the ketogenic journey after. Um, yeah, God, uh, so much. I mean, so yeah, so so good question. I mean, the, the way that I break it down now is when I think about suffering. And, you know, this is sort of what I was alluding to earlier. There's lots of ways to define suffering, but like, it's like, if we talked about physical pain, like we don't really have language for suffering. So we could say that, you know, I'm depressed or I'm anxious or, you know, I feel this or that, but some of these terms are very blurry in terms of what's actually going on underneath the surface to mechanistically generate that surface level of symptomatic experience. And so when I think about it, I'm like, okay. So, you know, there are two major causes of suffering that I like to simplify in my mind. There's psychogenic causes and there's biogenic causes. Mm -hmm. And so when you ask me that question, I'm like, I dealt with all the psychogenic causes. Like I, I systematically went through everything on the psychogenic side, you know, from past trauma to, you know, kind of like cognitive distortions and a CBT sense to, you know, kind of like different types of resourceful ways of thinking and, you know, mindset and all of that, you know, because we can't, we can't extricate that from, we, we can't separate that from, you know, what's going on in the totality of somebody who's suffering like, like me in, in that case. Yeah. But then once removing all of that stuff and still seeing that like something was still going wrong, right. Then the only thing that was left for me was to realize, okay, there's some biogenic stuff too, you know, because like clearly there's something there. And, you know, in my journey in particular, you know, what, what's interesting is that, is that I actually like the, the big turnaround for me there was, you know, kind of being diagnosed with ADHD and then getting Adderall and then finding that, you know, kind of, wow, on Adderall, I could really, you know, kind of like, like those symptoms didn't quite occur in the same way. So in terms of my experience, um, I made a distinction around the psychogenic causes of my suffering and the biogenic causes, and they get really mixed and intertwined, but it's sort of like, you know, you can't treat 
you know, kind of biogenic suffering with, you know, psychological interventions, just like you can't treat, you know, biogenic suffering with psychological interventions. And I think a lot of people, myself included for years, just don't understand that fundamentally. Mm -hmm. And it's like, if they're dealing with, you know, kind of the types of problems that we're talking about the ketogenic diet solving by seeing a therapist to talk about their childhood trauma, they're never going to get better. I'm sorry. It's just not, <laughs> you know, and, and I don't mean that as an insult to those therapists. I actually think that that serves a, a purpose of elevating their consciousness and making them, you know, wiser, you know, kind of more effective human beings. But, but if it's around that feeling that they're trying to resolve or cure, yeah. it's not about psychological trauma. It's about their biology. And, this is something that like I feel very passionate about because I feel like I spent, you know, over 20 years of my life trying to solve a biogenic problem, biogenic suffering with psychological interventions. And they were very effective to some extent, but they never got to like the root cause. And it's just sort of like if I could have told my younger self this, you know, it would have, I don't know, it, it would have changed my life trajectory. I would have suffered way less. So yeah. I, I was telling you a bit about like what I discovered on the biogenic side, you know, so like Adderall was, was one of like, you know, kind of the, the first like psychopharmaceuticals that I really, you know, kind of took that I found incredible, you know, kind of relief from, I mean, you know, Adderall is a, is an incredibly powerful, you know, kind of molecule, but you know, it also, I call it like a devil's bargain. Um, and, you know, there's a lot that people don't know about Adderall, you know, like, for example, I think there was a research article that I read that basically showed like an 8x increase in the incidence of Parkinson's and neurodegenerative disorders hmm. from long term Adderall users. And, you know, in my own mind, it kind of makes sense. I mean, like, you know, first of all, the way that you're diagnosed and, you know, kind of prescribed an amphetamine in this country is like shockingly simple. I, I've asked the adult Harvard ADHD scale to hundreds of people. I've not met one person that doesn't qualify for, you know, an Adderall prescription here in the US. And so it's not a very sharp instrument to get into what's really causing, you know, you to essentially need that medication. And then, you know, essentially like, you know, who really needs it in the first place, blah, blah, blah. Um, but then on another side, it's, it's also like ravaging, you know, your dopamine system and your dopamine neurons. And, you know, it's sort of like who I was on Adderall was, you know, like, like it was incredibly powerful for like some of those feelings and like making me like operational and productive in, you know, kind of like, despite, you know, kind of what was going on, I guess, cerebrally, but I couldn't match the pace of my wife, for example, <laughs> you know, like in a relationship basis. And I think that this is like actually a great study that someone should do. <laughs> but, you know, seeing how many divorces occur when people go on, you know, stimulants and they sort of like, you know, they, they end up getting out of resonance with their partners <laughs> because, you know, they're going a hundred miles per hour, you know, and they'll say they're going slower and it's yeah. a complicated dynamic there, but their partner is seeing them like in just differently, you know, like it, yeah. it just, it change a little bit. Yeah. 
Um, well, so it's interesting. I mean, Adderall clearly had a, a, a pretty profound effect on you, but not without concerns, but still yeah. with episodes of depression, it sounds like. It didn't completely eliminate your, your episodes of depression. And so what, well, think, what eventually led yeah. you to seek out ketosis as, a, as another treatment? Yeah. And, and by the way, I mean, I don't want to say, you know, like, oh, it was just Adderall. Like, you know, I also experimented with SSRIs and, you know, kind of like other different types of, um, of, of interventions. And, you know, it's like everything kind of had its place, you know, yeah. within the ecosystem. And, you know, like, I, I mean, I'm a huge fan of medications and molecules. Like, I think it's like, I mean, humans have done incredible, you know, bringing these things to, uh, to life. Um, but you know, essentially what happened was like, how, how do I put it? Like I, I got off Adderall, you know, so, you know, I weaned off, um, you know, which is hard in and of itself, you know, that's a whole separate conversation that we could talk about. Um, but, uh, you know, I, and, and then I went into more of like the biohacking, you know, kind of like, you know, kind of way. And, and I had a very deep, like you know, kind of functional strategy for myself with, you know, kind of targeted concentrated nutrients and, you know, different like supplemental molecules to help stimulate pathways, you know, so like you have, for example, you know, like your, you know, kind of L-tyrosine, you know, for essentially production of dopamine and stimulating that with P5P, you know, what there, there's a whole deep literature and, and, and rabbit hole on that. Um, and, you know, the thing is, is that, is that I got a lot better, you know, like on a, on a functional day-to-day -day basis, like I was operating at a much, much higher level than I had been previously, but under episodes of, of deep stress. And like, this is where all the pieces start to make a lot more sense. Mm -hmm. It's like, well, what happens? Well, okay. Like diet changes, you know, like. I could end up eating more. It's a lot easier in our, in our world to like eat carbs, you know, like carbs are, you know, basically all of our like CPG style foods. Like, you know, it's like easier for me to like spoon up some like oatmeal that, you know, kind of like I, you know, kind of poured hot water into than it is for me to like make like, you know, kind of a salad and a keto meal and, you know, filet a fish and, you know, saute it, you know, it's just like, especially when I'm a busy person doing all of this stuff. And so I think that like looking back and a lot of this is, you know, is fascinating because, because I, you know, I'm, I, I'll get in a minute to like even a deeper rabbit hole that I went down for my specific genotype that to me was like almost confirmatory around yeah. why I should be on, on the ketogenic diet, which like, again, if I had known younger, I would have experimented with it. And I would have said to myself, oh my God, you know, this is why I have these up days and I have these down days. And I'm like not understanding why, because I'm thinking to myself, I'm eating healthy. You know, it's like, look, like I know that, you know, apples don't really make me feel good, but like, you know, oranges and bananas and like other things like, you know, great. Why not? Let me just load them up because everyone says that these are healthy foods. Right. And so I think that there was a lot of that in there where it's like you combine like high stress, high demand, and, you know, also like having a wife and, you know, kind of a, a, a newborn baby. And, you know, it all sort of hit a, you know, kind of like, like a crisis peak for me where, you know, I was like, I do not want to be the father for my child who has off days, Yeah, you know, like I can't afford that. Like, 
I could do that as a, you know, kind of a single guy. I could do that even kind of, you know, with a wife, but like with a daughter, she's not going to understand that. Like I need to take off at like, you know, 6 PM and just, you know, kind of close the curtains, you know, or like during the weekend, I need like a serious recovery break. Like she's only going to understand I'm not there. I'm not available. You know, daddy doesn't love me. And then it's heartbreaking for me too. You know, that is heartbreaking. And so, yeah. And so I was like, I, I can't, like I was determined for my daughter, <laughs> you know, and for, for me too, but she was good motivation, but yeah. you know, like really determined for my daughter to, to not, not be that anymore. I and, love that imagery of you throwing her up in the air and catching her. Like, you don't, you don't want to miss that. That is, that's like key to I happiness mean, in life. And like, and you know, Brett, it's just like, I can't, there are people that that are that might listen to this that never experience the feeling that I'm talking about. And they never experienced it on such a variable schedule where they were like, I have no idea what's wrong with me. Like, why is this happening? I feel like I'm doing everything right. And then this will come out of nowhere. And it won't even come out based on like a bad event. It'll just happen. I'll be like happy, happy, happy. And then all of a sudden, it's just like, why am I waking up feeling like I have no energy and that I can't get out of bed? And it's just a slog to get through the day. And I can't think my brain is foggy. I can't remember anything. And it just felt like everything was offline. Mm-hmm. And I was like, it's not because my life is bad. You know, like it's not any of that. And, and I knew enough that it was biological. And I, I, I had developed a thesis for myself that any feeling that I ever have must necessarily be a hundred percent biological. It must be because it's a neurochemical event. Something is happening in my brain to generate me feeling like that. And so if I could figure out the root cause mechanism and I could attack that mechanism, then I could, I could solve my problem. And so that's what it became about. But again, I tried a bunch of different things and I was like, these are helping, but they're not getting there. And then basically, you know, it hit like kind of a, a crisis point where I had a lot of stress on my, on my plate. Um, you know, there was also family stress too, you know, where it's just like, I had more responsibilities for my daughter, Leela and, you know, kind of my wife was going through stuff. And then it was like, I couldn't handle it. You know, it was just too much. And, um, and I was like, I, I need to do something dry. I need to take another deep, deep stab at this. And, um, and that's actually where I, you know, kind of like found and read. Well, actually, it was during the time of of collaborating with you guys and, and starting that conversation, you know, because we started like I think probably met about a year ago or so. And so like I knew that you were doing this research. And I knew ketogenic diets were really interesting. And um, and, you know, then basically I heard about Chris Palmer's book, Brain Energy. And I was like, you know, let like, let's tie all these pieces together and let me just, you know, go for this and just see if this does it for me. And sure enough, like I go keto my first week. I'm like, whoa. <laughs> I'm like, wait, what? I'm like, this is amazing. <laughs> yeah, that quick, that yeah. dramatic, huh? Oh, that dramatic. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, it, it was, it was like, I mean, like, I remember like, okay, it's like cutting out the carbs, you know, I forgot the days of the week, but like, let's just say it was a Monday. 
you know, very hard. Like Monday, Tuesday, you know, maybe part of Wednesday, I'm like struggling. You know, I took a I took a full sick week, you know, because like I didn't try to power through. I was just like, I'm in a bad state. I need to just I need to I need to go down, you know, and like and recover here. And um and, you know, and I'm like, okay, so Monday, Tuesday, I'm like, this is gonna be horrible. I'm gonna need four weeks. Maybe I need to quit my my job. Like maybe I need to like rearrange my whole life, you know? Um, yeah, because I was like, I was like, I need to do something. I I was like, I cannot live like this for the rest of my life. And I can't show up like that for my daughter and my family. And um, and then basically, you know, on like Wednesday-ish, you know, there's like this this turnaround event where it's just like I kind of pop open. It's like the lights kind of came on. Yeah. And, like, <laughs> and you know, <laughs> like, and I remember kind of going a little bit slow from that point being like, being like, you know, I, I'm not going to like crank it up too far, but I'm going to like, like, this is a real signal. And then I started exercising again that week. And like, I hadn't wanted to exercise for a while because to me, it was like, it was a variable event. I was like, I'm going to spend energy. And then am I going to get it back the next day? Am I going to feel better? Am I going to feel worse? So it felt too risky sometimes to, to have a habitual exercise habit. And then I was like, okay, I'm exercising. That feels great. And then I just got stronger and stronger and stronger and stronger. And, you know, the only kind of quote unquote bad days that I've had, I can directly link to like some carbs that I ate, <laughs> you know, like it's like, it's like that clear of a signal, even to the point that like, at first my wife was like, <laughs> like, like, let me feed you this carb, you know, like, like, oh, you don't like, come on, please eat this. Like, oh, we're all eating it. It's so great. To the point where she was like, you're never eating carbs again. You know, <laughs> even she could tell the direct correlation. Yeah. She's like, oh no, cutting you off. Really, yeah. really, you know, because because it, it's that profound. Because like I would tell her, you know, the next day afterwards, I'm like waking up in the morning, going, I don't have energy, or like Leela's waking up us up at 3 a.m. And instead of me being able to pop up with energy, and you know, it's the easiest way to describe it, this word energy language, and all of this is very important. Again, we don't have great language to describe the phenomenological subjective experience that someone has. That are going through states that I'm describing, you know, before and after keto or with whatever problems I've had. Um, and um, but but it feels like energy. It feels like now Leela can wake me up at 3 a.m. and like I'm ready to go. You know, yeah. I'm not like zombie and like thinking like, how do I survive this? And then yeah. worried about the next day. It it just doesn't happen like that anymore. And it also fixed my gut too. Like, you know, I used to have like IBS. I mean, you know, without being too graphic, like I didn't had solid, you know, kind of doo-doos for like years. It was just became a part of life. Like, you know, like, you know, it's like who has solid doo-doos, you know, I just go. And then it's like, wow, that got fixed too. And um, yeah, and a lot of stuff. And, and you know, I, I think I told you this kind of going into it that like one of the things that that I discovered for myself going down this rabbit hole um, because I'm, I'm very fascinated and, and I think that there's a lot of, you know, kind of work in terms of like personalization in like, you know, all commercially available genotyping yeah. that actually sets thresholds 
personalized thresholds from everything from like clinical blood lab values to, you know, expectations of, you know, kind of maybe things that, you know, like could explain your symptoms better than any type of clinical blood labs that we have today yeah. can explain. And when I went down the rabbit hole, cause I'm an APOE for dual carrier and, um, and, you know, Peter Atia talks a lot about this, about like, you know, I heard him mention like, you know, like that, that APOE for people spike a lot. Um, and they spike in like an unusual way to glucose. And I started like investigating this a little bit more about the relationship between APOE4 and insulin resistance. And what I discovered was totally mind blowing. And like when I went deeper into my genotype, I was just like, whoa, there's a major smoking gun here that, you know, had I known just as an experimental biohacker when I was younger, I would have for sure been like, maybe I should try keto and my entire life, you know, would be different. So yeah. did you ever test yourself for insulin resistance? Cause that's also something that we just don't do enough of in medicine, right? We follow fasting blood sugar, hemoglobin A1C, but that just doesn't even hardly scratch the surface for insulin resistance. So, you know, you're, yeah. you like to meddle, you like to test, you like to tinker. So did you, did you get yes. into that? You, you're giving me the chills all over my body because the the big discovery that I made for myself and when I went into the literature is that cerebral insulin resistance and peripheral insulin resistance are actually not fully correlated, meaning you can have cerebral insulin resistance without peripheral insulin resistance. And so that means that like all of those like fasting glucose tests that I did and, you know, chemoglobin A1C tests that I did. And like, I was tested for that. There was no signal there. How about and fasting insulin or, or HOMA IR? Did you check? I don't those? know if I took that. Yeah. Yeah. You, would that have picked it up? You think? It might've. So, so this core, this, you know, disconnect, um, probably has to do with we need more sensitive testing well or may have to do with needing more sensitive testing because hemoglobin a1c and fasting glucose will catch it but way late like when insulin resistance has been going on for years or even decades in some cases so yeah. so yeah. part of it is a new paradigm in how we measure and test yeah yeah you, you give me the chills because when i went into like the pathophysiology of alzheimer's disease which my genotype is eight to 12x more likely to develop it actually is fully relating to cerebral insulin resistance, especially in the hippocampus. And what blew my mind was that, you know, there was one study in particular that showed that individuals with that genotype as early as 20 years old are starting to display the same levels of cerebral insulin resistance as someone with full on Alzheimer's dementia later in life. At 20 and years old. And I was old. just wow. 20. So they're dealing with that for decades yeah. before it turns into dementia. And I would complain to my mom and I would basically be like, why am I losing my memory? Like, what is going on? Like, I can't remember things the same way anymore. My brain is really foggy. And like, everyone would just say like, nah, nah, nah. it's like, you know, it's it, this is normal. And I'm like, I'm pretty sure this is not normal. Like my yeah. brain is not holding on to things, it's not grasping things. And I'm like, whoa. I don't have the hard data on that, but I mean, it is to me like the surest smoking gun and like a hypothesis that is certainly worth exploring much more deeply. Yeah. Yeah. So, so let's update us though. You talked about when you started a ketogenic diet 
yeah. and how after day three, it was such a dramatic change. How long has it been and, and what else has changed or stayed the same? Yeah, thanks. Um, so, so, you know, it's been, it's been roughly about like six months or so. And, you know, what I can say is that it's like everything is different. Everything is fundamentally different. And, you know, what I mean by that is that it's like my, my, my ability to maintain a constant, you know, like, you know, level of high performance is just there. It, it's just dialed in. It's locked in. I don't drop down. I don't have bad days. I don't have like waking up at 3 a.m. and like feeling like I'm not going to make it throughout the rest of the day because I'm, you know, it, it's just like that stuff is gone even to the point where like, like I remember, you know, kind of a year ago or so, it's like, it's like the thought on like a Saturday of going and taking, you know, kind of Lila to the park and, you know, doing fun stuff with her. It was like, what were my choices to like spend time with my daughter or to like rest and recover? And my, my choice would, would, you know, vacillate between the two, but like in my mind, I was like, I need to rest and recover. Whereas now that, that doesn't exist for me. And, um, and I would say the hardest part for me now is, and, and this is, I think probably a really fascinating thing for anyone who's getting onto this diet is, um, is, is dealing with carb addiction, you know, cause now I'm an addict and I have to deal with my addiction to carbs because I know how I react. Like I've proven it to myself what goes on when, you know, kind of, I, I overload on carbs. But the thing is, is that that doesn't mean that when I look at the pumpkin pie or I'm stressed out, or I haven't slept that much the night before, I don't like my brain doesn't scream at me to go eat that, that those types of foods. Okay. So it, so the cravings and the, and the draw has decreased. Oh, I mean, significantly yeah. like, you know, I, I would say that like, like I manage cravings extremely well, but, but I do want to make like, you know, kind of a statement to it that, you know, it's kind of like that AA adage that like, once you're an addict, you're always an addict. And it's like, it's like, I will tell you, you know, hopefully today and for the rest of my life, I am a sugar addict. I am a carb addict. I don't eat them right now, but I am addicted. And, you know, the thing is, is that you know, if I don't keep that in front of me, then I probably would make choices that today that would make me feel horrible tomorrow. Yeah. And, and then it becomes actually a vicious cycle because then the worse I feel, the more I actually want to eat carbs. And it's a dirty trick mm -hmm. of my mind. I don't know if that's yeah. the same for others. Uh, such but... a powerful realization. I mean, to, to have that insight is just so powerful in helping you stay in control. And so, so looking back over the past, you know, 20 years and the way you felt and the way you've cycled, did, did you ever think you would get to the point where you didn't have to think about depression or worry about depression? Did you ever think that would be your life? Not really. Yeah. Um, I, I definitely visualized it and prayed for it and hoped for it, <laughs> you know, yeah. like, yeah. you know, but, but my day-to-day -day reality could not prove to me over a long enough span of time that it was actually possible that I, that I truly figured it out. Yeah. And you know, th there was, there was a stack that I was on, I would say like a year ago or so that I did think was that, you know, and like, and the thing is, is that, um, you know, 
And it, it was incredibly healing and incredibly powerful for me. But it wasn't it wasn't this, you know, because like I think now at this point, I've, I'm fundamentally convinced that based on my genotype, like I do much better on a ketogenic diet over time. And I don't really understand the science well enough now to understand like eventually do I go back and I can introduce carbs and not have symptoms. But where I'm at now, I'm like, I would very happily spend the rest of my life, you know, fully like eliminating carbs and sugars because the way I feel on the other side of it is just so much more worth it. Yeah. I get, I get a full life back, like full vitality back. That's so and great the work to hear. That you guys do, the work that you guys do is so important. <laughs> like, I mean, oh my God, like, you know how many people are being mistreated and misdiagnosed that are like me that just need an intervention like this? that would radically change their life. And instead they're going to be put on all the wrong drugs yeah. for maybe decades. And they're going to get worse problems because of that. I mean, it's tragic. It's really, really tragic. Well, so let's bring your worlds together here, right? We've heard your amazing story, but now related to your job, right? Precision medicine, improving healthcare um, through personalized precision medicine. How do you see a ketogenic intervention fitting in and, and, and where should we start? So it's a, it's a really good question. And, you know, obviously we're, we're asking this question together right now as, as organizations and, um, and, you know, I, I mean, the simple answer is I don't know today. I mean, I think what I, what I hypothesize is that we're going to discover subtypes that if we know that you're one of those subtypes, when you're, you know, kind of like six months old like we're going to have a completely different lifestyle recommendation to you than we do to normal kids. Like your parents will know, they'll understand. They're not going to give you, you know, kind of cornflakes in the morning and, you know, feed you porridge. Like, you know, it, it'll be guiding your entire life as you get older. And then I think for the people that, you know, are currently in treatment right now for whatever they happen to be in treatment for. And I think this is part of like the really mind blowing concept of this that, you know, the way that Chris Palmer describes it is that, you know, it's like you don't like call, you know, kind of like influenza, COVID, pneumonia, whatever, like runny nose disease, like <laughs> sore throat disease and like cough disease. You know, yeah. you look at what is the root cause of, you know, kind of those symptoms and you treat the root cause. And for so many mental health disorders, we're not treating the root cause. We're just basically saying, oh, you have, you know, runny nose disease. Let's just treat your runny nose disease. But that, that endophenotype is, is continuing, you know, unscathed. And I think that that's what we're discovering. We're discovering those endophenotypes, really getting to that place of precision medicine and precision care. And so I think that like, I think we're definitely going to discover those, you know, we'll, we'll for sure discover like those, those subtypes to the point that like, you know, if you are one of them, we're going to say to you, okay, this is exactly what you do. You're going to be cured, like wipe our hands clean. Now it's easy. Like, you know, hallelujah, that's an easy case. I mean, the challenge will be having people like get on a diet like this and stick on the stick to the diet and deal with their addiction. You know, that that's a whole separate story that we'll also have to figure out because that also requires a, another way of looking at somebody's data and what they need. Um, and then I think that we're going to also discover a lot of really fascinating edge cases. And I think that, you know, 
it, it's hard to know right now what those are because you know part of what makes Mike Snyder's approach at Stanford and you know his whole longitudinal multiomic baseline profiling shtick just so powerful is that you know there are certain questions that you can't answer today if you didn't gather you know kind of this exquisitely deep data over the last year two years three years and it's not just about gathering a bunch of deep data what we've learned is that you also have to gather the right data with the right types of annotations the right types of you know connection points so that when you look back a year from now you're not asking yourself like what is that signal right there you know, like, and you're no, you have no way to analyze it, you know, for the level of precision and specificity and subtlety that we really want to deliver like true personalized healthcare. And so I think that that's what we have the opportunity to do to really see, you know, kind of what are, you know, the deep end of phenotypes, you know, kind of that, that generate the symptoms that this is a treatment addresses. And then how do you essentially like create the full, you know, kind of cornucopia of uh, of subtypes so to speak that might require like one or two or three additional things within their within their stack within their treatment protocols that address the totality of their symptoms so that they get to wake up tomorrow feeling amazing <laughs> like having yeah. a great life and not worrying about episodes and symptoms and you know all this stuff that gets in the way it's a well it's a great vision i mean it's a fantastic vision and that's why i think part of what makes your story so special? Not just the amazing personal journey, but having the thought process and the and the possibility to then take it to the next level and say, this happened to me, how can I help other people have the same and how can we identify them? Well, at the same time, having to come up with strategies to not eat your daughter's mac and cheese or pizza or whatever's <laughs> laying around, right? You've got to bring it all yes. together. And and so far you're finding a way and, and I appreciate yeah. you sharing that with us. Well, I, we're, we're all pioneering this way. I mean, I think that the biggest thing that I recognize is that, you know, no one should have to suffer like, like I did. It's just not necessary. <laughs> like there's, there's just, there's no like purpose to it. It's not a good thing. It's not ideal. And, you know, I, I think that now at this point, it's like when my endophenotype, you know, is really well characterized and known, then anyone who's kind of like me it's like, this is what they need to do. And, you know, there's not guesswork about it. We're not like, you know, wondering and scratching our heads. It's not like you need to go see three specialists and they all have different opinions. It's like, there is one ground fundamental truth that we can discover to help people. Yeah. And to me that that's, it's not that far away. Like, I think that, you know, we're, we're getting close to that place. And I think that the people that are struggling today need to know that there's hope. Like there really is yeah. like, you know, um, and, and, and to that point, it's like, even if what they're going through right now is hell and they cannot see a way out of it beyond suicide, because they're just like, so overwhelmed by the level of their suffering and, you know, kind of a lack of, you know, kind of a positive foreseeable future that they're going to get out of that mindset, like that, that, that they will be able to be taken out of that and like be back in this heavenly world that we have. And it can happen that fast too, when they find the right combination of things and the right treatment. And I think what we're talking about here with keto is incredibly safe. You know, like we're not talking about anything that, you know, is like seriously dangerous, 
And, you know, it's accessible to anyone today. Doesn't like cost a ton of money. In fact, it could actually end up costing you less money when you do it right. Yeah. And it just has all of the pros. There, there's no reason not to have it on the list as like a first line protocol. That's a wonderful vision too, right? I mean, it'd be great to phenotype everybody and know exactly who's going to benefit. But in the meantime, why wouldn't you try it? Because exactly like you said, I think you summed it up so well. Yeah. 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 I mean, there's probably performance benefits too. you know, like you, you hear performance athletes that, you know, kind of experiment with diets like this. Yeah. And, you know, so, so it's like, you know, it, it goes beyond just the concept of like, you know, curing disease and, and issues and illnesses. Um, yeah. but I'm grateful. I mean, look, if it wasn't for the work that you guys are doing, like I probably wouldn't have done this. You know, I myself. Now and, you're giving me chills. <laughs> really? I mean, it's so, so important. I mean, you know, I have so much respect for, you know, kind of what, you know, kind of you, your entire team and Jan have done and the pioneering spirit on that, because I've been in this world of philanthropy, you know, at Stanford, you know, now for a number of years and philanthropists are really angels on earth. I mean, you know, I don't, they don't get nearly enough credit for the work that they do because it's like, you know, look, we give a lot of like credit to venture capitalists. Like they scaled a business, you know, they became a billionaire and it's like, Ooh, it gets our greed thing going. But the reality is that, you know, like we wouldn't be sitting here having this conversation. We wouldn't be progressing the science. We wouldn't actually be getting to the answers that fast forward 25 years time from now when my daughter is at school with all of her friends and somebody's suffering, like if they get a direct answer immediately that cures them, that doesn't just like mortgage their symptoms and their pain for later. And that's because of the work that you're doing. That's because you guys, you know, decided that you're going to invest your hard earned money in solving this problem and investigating it further, not knowing what's going to come out of it. And I just think that it takes so much courage and, um, and it's, it's like a thankless job for, you know, in so many ways, because the people that you help are going to have no idea in a lot of ways that you were the cause of them being helped, but it is, I'm so grateful for you. Like really. Um, and yeah, thank you. I mean, yeah. like, I mean, look, I have that's, a life back because of this. Yeah. And that's, that's the message. That's what we want people to hear. You have a life back because of this and, and others can too. So thank you uh, tremendously. Thank you for sharing your journey for sharing your message of hope and for helping us trying to connect the dots with the, with the science, the genotype, the phenotype, and just wanting to feel better. So um, we'll direct people to your Twitter and your X account at, at Ben Rolnick. And uh, we look forward to hearing more from you. <laughs> Great. Yeah. Thank you so much. This was fun. Thanks, Ben. Thanks for listening to the Metabolic Mind podcast. If you found this episode helpful, please leave a rating and comment as we'd love to hear from you. And please click the subscribe button so you won't miss any of our future episodes. And you can see full video episodes on our YouTube page at Metabolic Mind. Lastly, if you know someone who may benefit from this information, please share it as our goal is to spread this information to help as many people as possible. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you here next time at the Metabolic Mind podcast.